And so this morning, church, we do begin this new series on the book of Matthew. And technically, we are beginning together what has been titled for many years, as you can see probably in your Bibles, quote, the gospel according to Matthew. And right away, to give sort of an intro to this book and how it applies to you and me, I actually think it's helpful to see why that title has been used, the gospel according to Matthew. And I bring this up because, as you may know, in the Bible, we have four different accounts of Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, ministry, and his death and resurrection. The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've been a Christian for some time, or if you're just somewhat familiar with the Bible, you probably know that these four books are often called the Gospels, right? often with a capital G. But also, as I'm sure you know, what we Christians believe is the central message of the universe is what we call the gospel, right? The good news, which is about how we're sinners, but God in love sent Jesus who came, lived a perfect life, died for sin, rose again. It's about how we're secure and loved forever by faith in him alone. And it's about how he's coming back one day to make everything good and right and beautiful again. That is the gospel, And so we have the four Gospels, and then we have the Gospel, the one good news of salvation. And therefore, perhaps you've always wondered, well, how do these relate? Why are these books called Gospels while we only have one true Gospel message that we trust in? And it's a good question, and the answer is, well, briefly, and I think this will be helpful, it's because what these gospel books are about is these are accounts that are showing us what it looked like when Jesus actually came here and accomplished the gospel. That's the point. There's only one gospel message of Jesus, what he did and what it means for us and for the whole world. And therefore, these books are called the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they tell the gospel being accomplished in history by Jesus. And to even further prove this, something I think is so fascinating about this is if you were to basically read any commentary from a scholar on the book of Matthew or on Mark, Luke, or John, What you would find is that scholars just love to debate what genre these books are, what genre Matthew is. Because on the one hand, many people, maybe yourself, at first glance, we just immediately think that this book is a biography because it tells us the life of Jesus. And yet, upon closer examination, just saying it's a biography isn't actually so accurate because while Matthew does contain a lot of biographical information and it's all true, still the reality is Matthew and the other Gospels aren't written in straight-up ancient biographical form. And we know that because, for example, besides Jesus' birth, as you know, very little is talked about concerning his first 30 years of life. And not only that, but around a third of these gospel books is dedicated only to the last week of Jesus' life with his death and then him coming back to life again. And, And so Matthew technically is definitely not just in the genre of biography, but also neither is this book just general narrative telling just history. Because while it does tell history, there's also 
a lot of poetry involved, proverbial sayings, long details about Jesus' teachings, his parables, Old Testament fulfillment texts, and more. And so it's not just narrative either. And now more could be said on that, but, the, but in short then, scholars for hundreds of years have seen that the content of, of Matthew and of these other gospel books, their genre, it, it's unique. It is. And the point is, why is that? Why are we talking about this? Well, here, here's the cool part. It's because what they're telling is unique. What Matthew in, is telling in his book that we're about to go through as a church, it is unique. And, and what is he telling? Well, again, in essence, he's telling us, showing us the gospel. And finally on this, this is why, by the way, the book is specifically titled The Gospel According to Matthew and not The Gospel of Matthew. Because it's not like Matthew has his gospel and then Luke has his gospel. Instead, the truth is there's only one gospel message. There's only one good news about Jesus. And this book that we're about to go through is simply an account from one of Jesus' disciples detailing what that gospel looked like in history when Jesus lived, died, and rose. But anyway, so that's just a quick intro to this book of Matthew. And hearing that, I hope it just excites you maybe a little bit to dig more into this together as a church because this isn't just a biography of Jesus's life, nor is it just a narrative. Instead, most properly, church, in space-time history, Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, accomplished the gospel, the good news for us. And so what we have in this book is the privilege of getting to see from one of the disciples who walked with Jesus what that was like when the gospel happened. And of course, what it means for you and me. And so that's a short intro to his book as a whole. But finally, that does bring us then to our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 1. And as we said before, we will be covering all of Matthew 1 this morning, which to be honest is a much bigger chunk of scripture than we will probably be doing in most of this series. But we'll do it because although there's a lot in here in Matthew 1, it all fits together telling us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And as you'll see, this chapter clearly has three sections, which will be our three sections this morning. First, it starts with an intro verse describing who Jesus is. And then second, there's this long genealogy, and there we're going to see what preceded and led up to the coming of Jesus. And then third and finally, this chapter ends by detailing how then Jesus actually entered our world. And so following Matthew in God's word, those will be our three sections this morning. First, who is Jesus? Second, what led up to Jesus' coming? And then third, looking at Jesus' actual arrival into our world. All of which, in a way, describes the beginning of the gospel being accomplished. But all that said, so let's dig in together and start this book of Matthew, church. And of course, in our first section here, we're going to be only in verse 1. And here, again, we're going to see Matthew start off his book with just this strong one-verse statement about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And it's an important verse. So look down to your Bibles. We'll begin the first verse in the New Testament. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew, in his first verse of his whole book about Jesus, right away, 
tells us four huge things about Jesus. Four huge things. First, we don't want to skip past that the Bible does clearly first call him Jesus here. Jesus. And and you know that word, we hear it all the time, and we'll talk about this more later in verse 21, where we see why this is his name, because it's given to him by God on purpose. But in short, right away, we, especially as English speakers, should know that the name Jesus in Hebrew literally just means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And so that's his name. This person that this book is going to be about is the Savior, God's rescuer and deliverer. And then second, Matthew continues on saying this Jesus is the Christ. And for a lot of us, we may hear that and and kind of think that maybe that's his last name or something. And to be honest, I thought that until I was a lot older than I'd like to admit. But the word Christ is just as you might know, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed one. And so, and, and who was this Messiah going to be? Well, he was going to be the long expected king and savior and priest and shepherd and more of God's people. And then third, Matthew doesn't even stop there though. So this is Jesus. This is the Christ. But then Matthew even further defines who this is by saying that Jesus is, quote, the son of David. And that's significant because as you may know, one of the things that God did in the Old Testament was that he promised King David that someone would come from his lineage and actually be the good and perfect and eternal king that people need. Which finally on this verse leads to Matthew's last statement there about Jesus. And that's how Jesus also is, quote, the son of Abraham. And and slowing down for a second, think about it. Out of all of these, I I assume for most of us that that one, son of Abraham, is probably the term that we think about least when we think about Jesus. But it's actually more important than we may assume at first. Because first, son of Abraham should remind us how all the way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. A, A covenant, meaning he entered into a relationship with special promises. And therefore, hearing son of Abraham about Jesus, we should immediately think, okay, so God here is fulfilling his promises. But not only that, and this is important for all of us here in this room, because what exactly, though, did, promise, did God promise Abraham all the way back in Genesis? Well, if you remember, in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God said this to Abraham, quote, and in your offspring... All the nations will be blessed. And so knowing that, Matthew is saying, and finally here we have the offspring, the son of Abraham coming as the Savior, as Christ, the Messiah, the King. And why? Well, because in him, all the nations will be blessed. (laughs) Meaning right away. In the opening verse of this book, of the whole New Testament, we are told that Jesus is coming for the world. And hearing that, maybe you're starting to see why this book is good news. It's not just biography. And so it's our first verse and section of Matthew here. And quickly, bringing that to you and I this morning, there's, there's a lot we could say, but, but in short, I just simply hope that all of us feel that Matthew One of Jesus' disciples who walked with Jesus, he very intentionally started off his book like this. For the readers back then and in God's providence for us today. And why? Well, again, also that we get a grasp on who this person he's about to write about truly is. 
And, and, and practically then that means that just from this one verse, we already have hinted at what is the most important question that each of us needs to answer. Right? It's the question that Matthew is going to answer throughout this whole book. And it's even the question that all the people who encounter Jesus are going to have to answer. And the question is, who really is Jesus? Right? And even us who are Christians, we need to keep asking and remembering the answer to that question. And the reason then why Matthew included this verse to start is because, yes, a lot more in 28 chapters is going to be said and proven and explained and shown about who Jesus is. But God in his word wants it to be clear right away that we should, be, we should get this straight who we're reading about. Because with the Old Testament background, remember this is the first page of the New Testament, with the Old Testament background of Israel's sin and our sin and our needing of more and our need of help, who is Jesus? Well, boom, right away. Verse one of the whole New Testament. This Jesus is the savior, God's deliverer. He's the king, the ultimate ruler that the world needs. Because let's be honest, we can't do this on our own. We need to be led. He's the promised son of David. And this Jesus is the promise, the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to reverse the curse and bless the nations and people like us. And that's just verse one. So that's our first section, which brings us now to continue on in Matthew into the second section. Now here, we are going to be in all of verses 2 through 17. And here we'll be looking at that genealogy and see what preceded and led up to Jesus' coming. And we need to be clear to say that this section is what led up to Jesus' coming. But it's not technically what existed before Jesus, because while this section, just so you know, does show us the historical lineage that occurred and prepared for the coming of Jesus in history, yet we can't think that the second person of the Trinity didn't exist before he came. That might be obvious, but I want that to be clear. And this particularly applies to something that Jesus himself even said, because glance down at verse 2, you can see the first name in this genealogy is going to be the name Abraham. And yet, it was Jesus who said this time in the gospel according to John, quote, before Abraham was, I am. And so we're going to start with Abraham now in verse 2. And we're going to see the historical development that led to Jesus' coming in history. And it is quite interesting. But what's really cool is as we read this, just know that the, the Son of God actually existed before Abraham. Or better yet, Jesus as God himself existed and was sovereign over this whole genealogy preparing for his coming into the world. Well, it said, so let's now read this long section. Now, as you see, Matthew very intentionally is going to split this genealogy and really the whole story of the Old Testament into three clear stages, three clear historical stages. And I know this is a genealogy, so we might want to skip past it, think it doesn't matter, but it's in God's word for a reason. So look down at your Bibles. Matthew 1, 2 through 17, and stick with me through all these names. Matthew 1, 2 through 17. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and uh, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ruth, of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, 
and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotil, and Sheotil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eluid, and Eluid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <laughs> so, there's a lot in there. But when you boil it down, there are essentially three main things that Matthew is doing here in this genealogy. Three main things. And the first is the most obvious one. It's how Matthew, through all those names and generations and people and, and their stories that they had, he is writing all of that to show God's providence in history leading up to Jesus' coming. Right? He's showing God's providence, God's control and guiding of history. And we know this because of that verse 17. And so look there again. Matthew lists all those names in those three stages on purpose. And yet, in case we missed it, he sums it up in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so again, Matthew is summing up the Old Testament story into these three stages. First, from Abraham all the way to David, which included some amazing things like God delivering his people from Egypt, but also some sinful times like the times of the judges. And then second, from David all the way to the time of the exile, which included, yes, some good things like the Israelites trying to worship the Lord under some better kings like David and Josiah, who's mentioned here. But also it included some obviously awful things, which is why they needed to be exiled and deported to Babylon, as Matthew says. And in many ways, those two stages, just so you know, are the bulk of the Old Testament. But then Matthew also includes this whole third stage, and it's an important one, and that's from the exile to the coming of Jesus. And here's especially where we see that Matthew wants us to see God's providence. Because after the exile, especially from about 400 BC onward, it was commonly thought that what's going on, God seems silent, God seems absent. Or it might have been thought that God didn't even have a plan. But the point here is, no, he did. Always. And so Matthew is saying, even with the people of Israel's sin that led them to their deportation to Babylon, still, for hundreds of years after that, God was fulfilling his plan. God had a plan. And brothers and sisters, quickly, the same is true for you and I in our stories and lives as well. 
And so that's the first thing Matthew is communicating, God's providence and his plan and history leading up to Jesus. And quickly on that, just in case you're wondering, the reason it's 14 generations is because back then they had this system of calculating and numbering names and the name David, if you put every letter together, added up to 14. And so Matthew is intentionally listing 14 generations all to show that all along God was intentionally fulfilling his promise to David. And then finally on this idea of providence, just so you know, the word the father of in English there and in the Greek and in Hebrew, this is true too, like in the genealogies in Genesis, it does not necessarily mean the first direct son of. Instead, everyone agrees that word just more generally meant the descendant of. And so in this list, just so you know, if you were to look it up, even some of these people are even separated by hundreds of years from those they are the father of. But, but Matthew's point is, yet yeah, in all these years and all these people, God was doing something. He was preparing for his coming in Jesus. So that's the first and most obvious thing that Matthew is doing with this genealogy, which now leads to the second thing. And, and this is a little more subtle. But, but, but it's clearly intentional and it's encouraging and interesting that he does this. So the Bible here is showing God's providence. But also remember, the promise to Abraham was to bless the nations. And so what Matthew also does here, and you need to do this, but what he also does is he interestingly a few times mentions woman, which in itself was revolutionary for genealogies back then. But not only that, but also a few of the women he mentions are Gentile women, non-Israelites. And to see him do this now, now to start, just look briefly at verse 3. Because there, although she's not a Gentile, Matthew mentions Tamar from the book of Genesis, which he didn't need to do. And then continuing on, now look at verse 5, because Matthew there decides to mention Rahab. The foreigner from the city of Jericho from the book of Joshua and Rahab wasn't only a woman but also a non-Israelite and also a prostitute. And so Matthew is making a statement mentioning her. And then also in verse 5, Matthew mentions Ruth who yes is famous because now she has a whole book of the Bible named after her. But remember, Ruth herself was a Moabite, not an Israelite by birth. And then finally, at the, end in verse, at the end of verse 6, Matthew mentions the wife of Uriah. And on this, Uriah, I th we think he mentions him because Uriah was a Hittite and the wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. And mentioning her is really significant because that's the story where David, yes, the same David, showed how sinful he was when he awfully abused his power and took Bathsheba and slept with her. And yet Matthew decides to remind us of that story here. And now much more could be said on that, but it's clear then Matthew is really intentional using this genealogy, yes, to show God's providence, but also the Bible is saying, and in God's providence and in his preparing the way for the Messiah, it's not just those who we'd expect to be here. Instead, since this Messiah is coming for all peoples from all nations, the Bible includes women and non-Israelites. And not only that, but since the Messiah is coming as the Savior, the Bible here mentions prostitutes. It mentions both good and evil kings. And it even reminds us of awful stories like David and Bathsheba, all to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And so that's the second thing Matthew's doing in this genealogy, which finally and much more briefly leads to the last thing. 
And for this, now look again at verse 16. Verse 16. And we bring this up because hearing this genealogy leading up to Jesus' coming and his lineage, some of you might be wondering, but wait, this genealogy goes to Joseph. And isn't Joseph not the physical father of Jesus? And that's why it's really cool. Notice, the Bible is careful to say what it says in verse 16. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. (laughs) So notice how carefully that's written. Jacob is the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And I love that because in other words, Matthew knows Jesus technically came from Mary's womb and yes, is legally in Joseph's lineage and yet he is not the physical son of Joseph. And obviously Matthew says it like that because on the one hand, it is true. Jesus wasn't born of Joseph. And we'll see that in a minute. Jesus was, in history, conceived by God's miraculous intervention. And that matters concerning his divinity, his sinlessness, his ability to save us, and more. And so that's true. But also, Matthew says all this here, church, because let's remember, in God's plan, he did have it that Joseph legally would be his father. And that matters, therefore, because in God's plan, he planned it perfectly. That number one, this Jesus legally is a descendant of the throne of David. And so he can be and he is the Messiah. But also, this baby isn't just a baby conceived of a man and a woman. Instead, he is truly a human, but he's also so much more. He's not merely only a human king, but he's the son of God himself. And, And the point is, Matthew himself knows that. And for us, We need to to know that too. And honestly, not just know it, but marvel at it. Because now with this whole genealogy looked at, I hope you see this really was planned perfectly by God. That's that's the point. Or as the Apostle Paul will say later in Galatians chapter 4, quote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, to redeem That's basically what Matthew's getting at here. The times were filling up. God was preparing for hundreds and thousands of years for all this. And then God sent forth his son. He came, born of a woman, but still God himself all to redeem. And to save and redeem all sorts of people from all the nations, people like you and me. Which finally brings us to our third and last section this morning here in Matthew chapter 1. And for this, now we're just going to be in verses 18 through 25. And and we won't spend as much time on this section as we could, simply because most of us have probably heard this story a lot, (laughs) right? And that's because this is now part of what we call the Christmas story. But what I hope we see this morning from this story together is with everything Matthew has said so far, with who Jesus is and the many years and people and God's plan that led to his coming, now with all of that set, I I hope we can look at this story and not just see it as some nice tale that we read during our Christmas season, but instead let's look at it as Matthew intended it. Showing us how now this Jesus, this Savior, this King that we need in the blessing of the nations, how he actually in history entered the world that you and I live in. 
And so now with that said, let's read this familiar story. The Messiah is coming. He's been planned for thousands of years and then he came here and here is how it happened. Verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So to begin on this story, I think we should return briefly again to that idea of the virgin birth. The virgin birth. Because Matthew talks about it in his first verse there in verse 18, and then he talks about it again by quoting that verse from Isaiah in verse 23. And so for Matthew and for all of Jesus' early disciples, the idea that Jesus was actually born of Mary and yet conceived from the Holy Spirit himself, it it was a big deal. And as we already mentioned, it has a lot of implications. But I want to bring that up now because perhaps, to be honest, for some of you in this room, even though you know that the Bible teaches it, the virgin birth might still sound crazy or impossible to you. And in a way, it should. Because virgins giving birth, that, that doesn't happen. And yet, the reason I bring this up here is because I do think that once we start to grasp what Matthew is saying here, even in just this chapter so far, meaning once we see that bigger than just the virgin birth, the Bible has said so far that this person coming is going to be God's Christ, the world's king, who is the fulfillment of this promise to David. And it's the fulfillment of how God himself said he'd reverse the curse and bless the nations. And not only that, but now also, as we see in verse 23, amazingly, this person is even Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Once we get that, then doesn't it make sense That the same God who prepared and planned for all this and promised all this and himself came and accomplished all this, doesn't it make sense that he could easily do a simple miracle like make a woman become pregnant in a unique way? (laughs) And, And in short, I do think that's then kind of the big issue here about the virgin birth. It isn't, how could a woman become pregnant without insemination? That's impossible. Of course it is. It is impossible by normal means, and yet, that's, that's not the issue. Instead, the issue is, is all this about God actually true? Is God truly the creator and sustainer of everything? Is Jesus the savior, the king, the blessing of the nations, and God with us? Because if he isn't, then, then yeah, game over. Then this is just a made-up story. But if he is then believing in the virgin birth is is no hurdle at all. 
Instead, it actually makes sense because this person's birth was no mere baby being born. Rather, this was the Savior King, the God-man entering our world, or better yet, entering his world. (laughs) And so that's the first thing I want us to notice here. But now more briefly, let's just continue on and see a few more things from this famous story, especially from Matthew's perspective. And, And so now just quickly notice something that happens in verse 20, verse 20. And so as you know, Joseph is, he's thinking about leaving Mary quietly because he found out she's pregnant and an angel comes to him to stop him. And yet with everything we've seen in Matthew 1 so far, now notice though exactly what the angel calls him. Look at verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So think about everything we've seen in Matthew 1 so far, trying to think along with Matthew. Ask yourself, why would Matthew mention how the angel specifically calls him Joseph, son of David? And you probably already know the answer, but it's because, again, Matthew wants us to see that, yes, this story is about Jesus and Mary and the virgin birth, but also, let's remember, again, Jesus was, the, Jesus' legal father was Joseph, and Joseph, son of David. And so, again, in this one verse, we have this miraculous, divine person being born, Emmanuel, God with us, conceived from the Holy Spirit, and yet he is a human being in the legal lineage of David, the God-man, the Savior King. Which next then leads us, fittingly, on the story to consider how and why Joseph is told to call him Jesus in verse 21, verse 21. And so look there now. Next, Joseph is told this, verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so as we already talked about this morning, Jesus' name in Hebrew does simply mean Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. But that's not all that the angel or Matthew gives us here. Because in this verse, we also see a lot more about why that's Jesus' name. Because what will Jesus do in his saving? Well, it's clear there at the end of verse 21, he will, it's a promise, save his people. Meaning, this baby being born is going to have a people. And importantly and finally, what will he save his people from? Well, significantly, the Bible doesn't say here that he's going to save or deliver his people from certain things that we so often think that we need deliverance from the most. And this is a crucial point because Jesus is the Savior. But brothers and sisters, we all need to remember, especially because so many even so-called Christians get mistaken on this, we all need to remember that Jesus being the Savior doesn't mean that he's going to give us certain political deliverance or financial deliverance or deliverance from all of our health issues or psychological deliverance or anything else like that in this life yet that we think that we need most. Instead, why specifically is his name Jesus? Well, because he will deliver, save, rescue his people from their sins. And as a quick side note, if you are more curious about that verse, that one verse was our whole Christmas Eve message from 2021. And so you can go on the website and listen to that if you're curious more about that. But in short, brothers and sisters, this is an amazing verse. 
Because in the Bible and in our lives, let's be honest, we do have a lot of sin. And and sin is serious. It's, It's not just biblically bad things we do, but we are sinful now to the core. Everything we do and think and say is at least stained Right, with God belittling thoughts, with selfishness, with a lack of love toward others, with an inward bent, pride, envy, and so much more. And so we're sinners, and God knows that, and he knows it more than even you and I do. But here comes the Savior, the Christ, the King, the blessing of the nations, the Son of David, and what will he do? How will he save and reign and bless? Well, above all, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Finally, fully, forever. Or to put this most simply, for you and me, if if you and I are sinners, which we are, then this one verse here is saying to all of us here this morning, there really is hope. There really is hope. But the hope, according to the Bible, is not in us now doing good enough or suddenly becoming sinless. That won't happen. At least not in this life. Instead, the Bible is clear. Our only hope is in this Jesus. Because that's this verse. That's the promise. That's his name. He will save his people from their sins. Which finally, on all of this in Matthew chapter 1, just leads us briefly to take a closer look at those final two verses. Final two verses. Because now with all of that preparing, now it finally happens, church. Jesus comes. And so one last time this morning, look at your Bibles, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And so we read those verses to kind of finish here this morning because I know this message in many ways has been a lot of information. That's because we've covered this whole chapter in a way. And Matthew does pack a lot of information into this chapter, a lot about God's plan and history and who Jesus is and who we are and more. And in a way, all of it does climax in verses 21 through 23, right before this, with Jesus saving his people from their sins and him being, quote, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this chapter has been building up and it it climaxes with who this Jesus is. And then yet, what happens next is verses 24 and 25 happen. And they're important because while this chapter may all sound so high and lofty, and in many ways it is, yet still, how does this chapter end? Well, with something seemingly so normal happening in this world, with a baby being born, with finally Mary giving birth in the normal, painful, fallen human way to a son, a baby. And Joseph calls that baby Jesus. God saves. And that is the last word of Matthew 1. And so in this one chapter, we go from this is the record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we go through this whole long genealogy showing that this has been long in the making. And then we see this amazing virgin conception and how he will save his people from their sins and he is God with us. We go from all of that to a baby, (laughs) a baby, which does show us in an amazing way how our God works. (laughs) And so that is Matthew chapter one, church, which means now as we quickly come to a close, it means for you and me that I know for, for a lot of this, 
this perhaps was stuff that we already knew. I mean, maybe this is new to you, and if so, I think that's, that's really great. But the truth is, in our culture and in our churches, many of us know these things about Jesus. Especially, we know that story. And yet, to really bring this home to you and I, what I just encourage us all to do as we close is just try to imagine if we were Matthew's first readers. Or especially just try to imagine if we had never heard any of this before. Because think about it, if that was actually the case, can you imagine what sort of thing these sort of statements would produce in our hearts? Can you imagine how much awe a chapter like that would produce and how that awe would change the way we viewed the world we live in and our lives? And yet, that often doesn't happen. And why? Well, simply because we're familiar with all of this. We're familiar with it. And so I just urge all of us, as we close, let's not let mere familiarity take away our awe and wonder and worship. Because again, church, this is Jesus. This is the living creator God. This is the good news. Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, God with us and our savior. And remember, he, he didn't have to come and do this for us. The Son of God, theoretically, could have just stayed on his throne and let us go the way we deserve. But in history, in love for you and me, Jesus came to save his people from their sins, from our sins. He came to accomplish the gospel in history. And for that, this God-man, this Savior King, deserves our awe, our trust, and our worship. Amen? Let's pray.